Let's Fix Work is proudly sponsored by Ultimate Software. Human resources, payroll, talent management, they've got it all. Please visit ultimatesoftware.com to learn more. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Brudeman. Today's guest is Martin Moore, founder and CEO of Your CEO Mentor. Now, that's a mouthful, and it's taken me five takes to get his name and title out. But Marty is a successful CEO who has already walked the path of leadership. He's now sharing his insights and wisdom that come from real-world experience. And in today's episode, we talk about the five ways to kill your leadership career. So if you're looking to improve your leadership skills and want to hear from a guy with an Australian accent, this show is for you. So sit tight and I'll be right back with more Marty Moore and Let's Fix Work. Work is broken. And so is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is picking up the pieces so you can take control of your career, put yourself first, and be your own HR. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, Marty. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. Hey, Lori. It's great to be here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Love the accent. It's just such a joy to hear you speak. It's so just <laughs> like music in my ears. Why don't you tell me who you are and where you hail from? Well, uh, just so you listeners know, I'm not actually Crocodile Dundee, but I am Australian. Uh, I'm from Brisbane, Australia, and I'm an ex-CEO who's out there changing the world of leadership. Well, that's a tall and daunting order, Martin, and I'm so glad to have you in Raleigh. You're going to do a great job changing leadership and fixing leadership for my listeners today. You know, it's the time of year when people are thinking about their careers, how to get promoted, snag a new, or maybe first leadership role. And I want to talk about the state of leadership in 2019. Can you get us started by telling us what's the minimum requirements to be a leader today? So, Laurie, leadership hasn't changed that much, although it is getting more difficult as time goes on with massive geographical dispersions of workforces and also the telecommuting things that happen now. So you've got people working from remote places. Command and control hasn't worked for a lot of years because you find that you can't watch the people and what they're doing. So there's got to be a different way of doing things as a leader. And the leadership skills that everyone's been speaking about for 20 years are now becoming more and more important because it's so critical that people are value-driven and outcome-driven and not input-driven. So you can't watch someone sit at their desk from eight till six anymore. You've got to make sure that you're monitoring their outputs. And that takes some leadership and influence. So the core skills that leaders need, I, I think there are five basic skills for a leader. The first of those is communication. And when I say communication, it's not just talking because all leaders can talk. It's about listening as well and understanding the people that you're talking to. There's the very important skills of challenging, coaching, and confronting. So that's, that's one skill, which I think is the ability to get the most out of your people by having the leadership dialogue that brings out their best. The third really core leadership skill is building a high-performing team. And I think building a high-performing team is a lot harder than it sounds. And a lot of people say, I've built a high-performing team. But when you quiz them on it, they don't really know what that means. It generally boils down to people being happy and all getting on well together. But do they actually deliver the outcomes that's required of them by the organization? Another core leadership skill, which funnily enough is normally um, tasked as management, is planning and organizing. And I think planning and organizing is such a critical fact for a leader. You can't be a great leader unless you can manage, and you can't be a great manager unless you can lead. The two things for me are symbiotic, although these days people like to make them very black and white and very differentiated. But planning and organizing are just sensational and so important. And then you've got making decisions, which is the final skill. And I think every leader needs to be able to make great decisions. And so many things in a leader's makeup 
determine whether or not their decisions are good, bad or indifferent. And the career killers feed into that. It's so interesting that there are those core skills that make up a leader and they're so foundational and they're common sense. And I think a lot of people over-index and overestimate their leadership skills. So how do you know you're ready to take on a new leadership role in 2019 or beyond? Well, I think you never really know. Uh, sometimes you have to trust the judgment of the people above you to determine when they should promote you. Or if you're looking out in the market, then you need to make a jump when you feel as though you're being held back or you're not being challenged anymore. But one of my big things is that what made you successful in your current role will not necessarily make you successful in your next role. And so understanding that paradox of what got you to here won't necessarily get you to there is something that's the most important thing for anyone to evaluate individually. Yeah, everything in my career that happened beforehand will not get me to where I need to be in the future. Boy, I am a flawed individual. And you've written quite a bit about ways to kill your leadership career. And I feel like I've lived all of those individual ways myself. So can you tell us about the first way to kill your leadership career, which is to avoid conflict? Yeah, sure, Laurie. And I think the, the biggest flaw I find in senior leaders is that they are conflict averse and it affects everything you do as a leader. So, for example, you can't have a direct conversation with one of the people in your team unless you are able to handle conflict comfortably. And I spoke a little bit before about the ability to challenge, coach and confront. Some of these conversations are, by necessity, going to be tough. And so you've got to be able to deal with that as a leader and not worry about your own feelings, your own fears, your own misgivings and your own crap. You know, Marty, I think some of us feel that we're better at avoiding conflict or mitigating conflict or mediating conflict than we really are. Do you have any tips or tricks to really get good at either delivering feedback or receiving feedback or all the things that go with conflict? How do we get better at it? It's just not a skill that comes naturally to so many people. No, and that's, that's a really good question, Ari, because I think at the outset, it's much more about the will than the skill. And I like to say that learning how to have difficult conversations is a bit like learning to ski in deep powder snow. You can hear all the things about the technique that you need to have, but it's really just about doing enough of it that you start to, to get comfortable with it and it just starts to feel natural. And so for most early leaders, they just don't have the will to dive into these conversations. Now, fortunately, I was a little bit dysfunctional. When I first started having these conversations, I was as bad as you could possibly imagine anyone being. But what I realized when I walked out of my first couple of conversations was, this is a core school for a leader. And if I don't get good at this, I'm not going to be a good leader. And so I threw myself into these and had as many of these conversations as I could, as quickly as I could. And I just became better at it over time. So the skill will come. It just starts with the will. What I hear you also saying is that a leader has to be comfortable with failure. And I think there are so many of us who feel that at least early in our leadership careers, there's no room for failure. We try to de-risk everything. So can you speak to me a little bit about failure and how to get comfortable? Because if you're jumping in and having conversations and learning on the fly, you're bound to fail. Yes, you are. And um, I think getting better as you go is the main thing. So I have also a very, very big mantra about excellence over perfection. You're not looking to be perfect. You're looking to improve and to keep things moving forward. So as a leader in decision-making, you want to be fast and you want to get things 80% right. If you can keep your, your team and your organization moving forward, you're miles ahead of pretty much everyone else in that space. Marty, this is why you are my leadership coach and consultant and my CEO mentor. I really appreciate your guidance on all of this. You've written that one of the greatest skills a leader can have is to know what's real and what's noise. So I guess leaders can't struggle with ambiguity in 2019. That's what I'm hearing you say. So how do you avoid ambiguity as a career killer? 
Yeah, so Laurie, ambiguity is something that we all face and the higher up you go in an organisation, funnily enough, the more ambiguous and uncertain things become. And so having the discipline to actually push through the uncertainty and create certainty for your people and your team is a core skill for a leader. So what do I mean when I say work out what's real and what's noise? It's about the number of things that you would necessarily have to consider in any given decision or issue or problem at hand. And there could be 30 things on the table, but there's only going to be two or three or four that are actually really critical to your decision. And so it's being able to work out what's real, those three or four really important things, and to discard everything else. Because even though it's just noise, it will be compelling noise. And you'll have people in your team who are trying to run their flag up the flagpole and say, boss, this is really, really important, when it probably isn't. So it's having the discipline to really sit down and understand what's worth listening to and what's worth heeding in any decision-making process. You know, Marty, I hear you speak a lot about listening. And what I really hear is this skill to be quiet and to be mindful and to be focused. As a leader, do you need to carve out time for mindfulness? How do you practice this so that in the moment with your team, you're not reacting and you're actually being thoughtful and you're giving people the space and time to freak out themselves, but not freak out with them? Okay, so this is this is a multi-part answer here, Laurie, because if I've given you the impression that I'm calm and relaxed and mindful all the time, then that would be completely wrong. I'm not, I'm not like that at all. And particularly as a CEO of a major business, uh, as I like to say, it's like standing at the end of a wind tunnel and at the other end, people are just throwing in flotsam and jetsam and you've got shit coming down the wind tunnel at you, hitting you in the face all the time. And that's just the way it is. So you're quite often reactionary. And I think one of my skills, I guess, more than mindfulness and the ability to sit back is the ability to process really quickly. So as all this stuff's coming at me, one of my rare skills is to be able to actually put that into context and understand what's going on and to guide a conversation so that I can drag the best out of all the people around the table. But I don't think I'd like anyone to have the impression that I'm really calm and relaxed. Although I must say that under pressure and in stress situations, resilience is what we're talking about there. And that's where I am good because I can stay calm in almost any situation. And fortunately, that rubs off on the people around you by osmosis. So I find that by being super calm myself, the leaders around me and the other people go, oh, it's okay. The boss is fine. I'll be fine. So good. I wish I had that sense of calmness and resiliency. I've taken classes in mindfulness-based stress reduction, and I really tried to breathe. But I find that that's one of the things that I'm working on, not to freak out in the moment as a leader. Sometimes I think that I may be freaking out because I'm playing the wrong game. And you write that far too many leaders are working at the wrong level. What does that mean? So this is, once again, one of the great paradoxes of leadership. So when you first get promoted, you think about your first job out of college, and you'll be in a situation where you've just spent a number of years getting yourself qualified. You may have gone to law school or, or med school or whatever, and you come out and you go into the career of your dreams. And for those years of qualification, you then start to get experience. You do two or three or four years before you get promoted into your first leadership role. And ironically, as soon as you get promoted, you go from being an absolute expert in the field that you've chosen to being a novice as a leader. And the temptation, of course, is to stay where we're comfortable. And the temptation is to stay with the things we know we're good at. And that isn't necessarily the leadership stuff. So you can see people going through their careers. And of course, at the first promotion, it's so easy. Like you can overfunction and you can do all the stuff you used to do before. You just put more hours in in your week and you can get things done and you can still be very hands on. But as you go up the layers, letting go of the previous role and working out what the next role entails, because each role has its own purpose and each layer has its purpose, that's what a lot of people don't do. So they find that as they go up, their workload becomes more and more. They can't control everything they used to control and it freaks them out and they're constantly being drawn back into 
the previous role or previous levels they were at. Yeah, it makes me grateful that I'm such uh, an excellent CEO of a team of one. I can manage myself and that's perfect. Well, Marty, when we come back, we're going to cover the final two leadership career killers, talk about who's doing leadership right in 2019, and talk about the role of culture in an organization. So sit tight, Marty and everyone else. We'll be right back with more Marty Moore and Let's Fix Work. Hey, everybody, Lori Rudiman here to talk to you about ongoing leadership and development opportunities. Now, I'm no longer a human resources leader, but I'm staying current with HR best practices. That's why I'm thrilled to partner with Ultimate Software to help promote its educational and totally complimentary HR workshops. That's right, everybody. Ultimate is giving you some free continuing education. Ultimate Software brings together industry experts, knowledgeable and inspiring speakers, along with a variety of HR, payroll, and talent management professionals for full-day masterclasses packed with networking, thought leadership, and education. During the Ultimate Software HR workshops, you're going to learn about time-tested HR solutions that companies like yours have implemented to improve their organizations. You'll also leave with the tools and strategies that'll help you succeed in your daily responsibilities. And bonus, you're going to earn HRCI and SHRM professional development credits and APA recertification credits. And by the way, did I mention it's all free? Ultimate Software is hosting dozens of free educational HR workshops across the country, and they might be coming to a city near you. So check out ultimatesoftware.com forward slash LFW for details and to find the right workshop that'll set you ahead in your career. That's ultimatesoftware.com forward slash LFW. One more time, ultimatesoftware forward slash LFW. Check it out now, and maybe I'll see you in a city near you. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman, and my guest today is Martin Moore, and he's all the way in from Brisbane, Australia. Martin, how you doing? Yeah, great, Lori. Great to be back. So as we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about your organization and the work you do in Australia? Because I know people are curious, and they'd love to hear more. Thanks, Laurie. Well, look, with um, with technology the way it is these days, we're planning that our business will be global. And uh, I founded this business. It's called Your CEO Mentor with my daughter, Emma, who's a digital marketer and she's just a, a little powerhouse. And our purpose is to improve the quality of leaders globally. And I know that's a lofty purpose, but um, my personal belief and Emma's belief is that leadership drives everything. And if we can improve one leader or a thousand leaders or a million leaders, then the world's going to be a much better place. And that's what we're trying to do. Well, I have to give a lot of props to your daughter, Emma, because what a lovely young woman. And she was the one who insisted that we meet live here in Raleigh. She said, no, it's not going to, it'll be fine if it's on Zoom, but it'll be better if you meet face to face. And she is right. I'm really grateful for the connection. How long have you been working with your daughter? Has this been a longstanding family business or something that's new in your personal career? No, it's only new, Laurie. We've been planning it for quite some time. So, um, so probably for a couple of years, but it was pretty hard with my CEO role, which was pretty constant, to do anything uh, until I stepped down from that. So I finished my five-year contract at CS Energy in August of 2018, and that's when we really got a, a hurry along with the business. Well, it's a dream for a lot of people to work with their family members, and I love that you're doing it, and I love that you're sharing your experience. You know, every job has its setbacks, including the job that you're doing today. And I wonder, you talked about resilience in the first half. Why is it so important? And maybe... Could you define resilience for the audience? Look, I'll, I'll rely on people who are much smarter than me to define resilience. There was some work done, maybe only recently, maybe in the last 20 years, about adversity quotient. 
an adversity quotient is a measure of resilience, the same way intelligence quotient measures your smarts and emotional intelligence or emotional quotient measures your sociability and your ability to get on with people. So AQ is quite an important measure. But really the way I look at it is that like anything else, resilience can be built. And you build resilience through getting through the other side of adversity. And when you face tough challenges and things that go wrong and things that confront you, and you manage to face up to them and get through them, your resilience is built. It's like going to the gym, you lift weights, and that resistance creates the muscle. And resilience is the muscle, adversity is the gym and the weights. So can you tell us a story about building resilience in your career as a CEO? Because I would imagine you make the tough decisions, you see the underbelly of an organization from time to time. So what were some important moments in your career that helped you to develop the resilience that you have today? Stuff goes wrong all the time. And I think that in a corporate career, and a lot of people listening will relate to this, things happen every single day, big and small, that you just need to deal with and get on top of. And how you react to those, you can see it in people when they roll up and go into a ball in fetal position in the corner of their office, or when they yell and scream, or when they can't make decisions and they freeze. You can see the people who handle adversity well and those who don't. I haven't quite got to the answer of the question yet, which is what things actually were important to me. And to tell you the truth, there aren't too many that actually stick in my mind. But making very difficult decisions and going through that emotional trauma that comes when you're dealing with other people's lives certainly has a big impact. And sometimes in a corporate environment, you can't change an outcome. The only thing you can change is the way that outcome is delivered. And so, for example, um, one thing that sticks in my mind is, is probably about 15 or 16 years ago, I was working for a mining company as an executive and we were taken over by a larger global mining company and I had to make probably half of the division I had redundant. And so I had to sit down in a room, well, I chose to sit down in a room rather than have HR do it. I chose to sit down in a room with every single individual in my group and told them whether they had a job or didn't have a job and what was going to happen to them as an outcome. So um, many of your listeners will have seen the, the movie Up in the Air with George Clooney, where his job was to fly around the country making people redundant. And I don't want that sort of impersonal and cold thing to ever happen to anyone else. So as a leader, I take on the responsibility to say, I'm going to step into that space. I know it's going to be hard but it's better for them and ultimately I'm going to develop because of that. So that's just one of those things that I had to face into, but there's many, many, many examples of that big and small. It's so interesting that you shared the example of redundancy because I've worked for a lot of people who lead with self-interest and would be glad to have HR do their dirty work. So um, you have written that self-interest is a career killer and you write a lot about integrity and I'm I think I'm obsessed with character and integrity. I mean, if that's not what we have in this world, we have nothing. So tell me about the importance of integrity and character and why self-interest is a career killer. Let's start with the career killer aspect of it, Laurie, because I think that if people lead with self-interest, their team can smell it and they can smell it a mile away. And as I like to say, if you're in it for yourself, your people will never be in it for you. And so the way it kills your career is that you can't get the loyalty the drive, the discretionary effort, and the commitment from your people. And so what are you going to do? You're not going to deliver great results if you haven't got a team that in turn delivers great results. And it's a completely different environment than when you're leading for the team and for the organization with the best interests of the broader stakeholder group in mind that you really start to get great results. But we're all human. We all start with self-interest and then we have to consciously put that aside to look at what the best thing is in the circumstance. So for me personally, and, and I've always thought that if I do a fantastic job and I work hard and I work with the right intent, 
then the rewards will flow. So I've never really focused on the output of rewards, my next pay rise, my next promotion or whatever else. But funnily enough, they've come when they should have and sometimes before they should have purely because I think I had the right attitude and the right intent. But for me, nothing's more important than my ability to look myself in the mirror in the morning. And if you talk to any leader about what their values are, 99% of them will always have the word integrity there somewhere. And they'll tell you how important integrity is to them. But the people who are around them and who work for them know whether or not they actually have integrity. And it's pretty easy to get found out because people read this stuff really, really well. That is so fascinating. You're right. I mean, people can just sense someone who's disingenuous a mile away. And it's almost heartbreaking to watch that person think that they're fooling you. But also they're fooling themselves. And that is just some psychological warfare happening right there. So, you know, we've talked about the five leadership career killers. And I wonder if we can switch tracks for a second and talk about who's doing leadership right in 2019. You are a CEO mentor. And I would imagine that you have people whom you admire. And I wonder who's on that list of people who are doing it right. Yeah, it's a good question because the public domain and what we see in the news and media feed doesn't give us many role models to look at. And I look at people like, and by the way, this is not at all political, but I look at people like Michelle Obama and I say, the stuff that she does out there in public for charity and for the good of progressing the planet and the people, I think is just amazing. But she's one of those very, very rare few people that does that. There's a lot of entertaining leaders. There's a lot of charismatic leaders. But the role models are actually few and far between. And when we look in the political sphere in Australia, you know, we really struggle finding strong leadership in politics in Australia. And I think it's the same in probably most of the developed world as we have this backlash of populism coming through. But there aren't many good role models for our kids there. And so obviously part of our purpose, which is to improve the quality of leaders, goes towards, you know, let's generate more role models. I've worked with so many intelligent, capable and experienced people across my career. But I can really count the number of great leaders I've worked with on one hand, and I don't need all fingers. So I admire certain parts of many, many leaders, and there's things I can say about you know, a particular leader by the name of Paul O'Sullivan, who used to run a large telco business in Australia called Optus, and there were parts of his repertoire that I absolutely loved and admired more than I could imagine, but people who worked very, very closely with him knew his dark side as well. And so no leader is complete, including me. No leader is perfect. No leader has it all. And so I think it's finding the elements of leadership and then working out for yourself what your leadership brand is and what for you uniquely differentiates you as a strong leader. You know, when I think about leaders and the incompleteness or the challenge that leaders have to be all things to all people and how they fail often, they fail themselves and they fail us. It makes me think about a company's culture, its climate. And some people say that a culture or a climate of a company starts at the top. And then others say that in order for an organization to be healthy, you have to have a grassroots movement and really intelligent, thoughtful, engaged people who are committed to bringing something special to work every day. So what's the right balance there between leadership and employees and how does a company's climate or culture get formed anyway when leadership is such a, I don't know, a precarious art and a precarious science? Yeah. So um, how many hours have we got for the podcast, Laurie? That's, that's a great question, right? Look, I'm, I'm a very, very strong believer in culture. And culture, it's just a fact of life. Culture is simply the way we do things around here. That's all it is. It's just, it's just the, the cultural norms by which people conduct themselves. And if you want to change a culture, because every organization has a culture, it has a prevailing culture that is there when you walk in. And to change that is extraordinarily difficult. 
And whereas you do need some level of grassroots movement, I'm very, very much on the side that says leadership drives culture and culture drives performance. You don't change a culture for fun or for any altruistic reason. What you get as a byproduct is that people generally are happier in a constructive high-performance culture, if you can create that. But it means that leaders all the way through the line, not just the CEO, but the CEO's got to be the one who actually sets the, the, the pace, the tempo, the standard. That's got to come from the CEO. And if the CEO doesn't do that, then no one below them is going to do that. So the CEO actually starts it off and the CEO has to drive that every single day. And part of that is working out which leaders will and will not participate in driving through a constructive high-performance culture. And so part of the really hard work of driving culture is getting the right leaders in place. And that means a lot of people who are just really good people aren't going to last. They're not going to be right for your organization. And they need to go off. You need to free them up to be successful in another organization. And so leadership drives culture, culture drives performance. It starts at the top and works its way through the ranks. And finally, you get down to the grassroots where people say, that makes sense. I trust you as my leader. I know that we're on a good mission and our purpose is sound and I'm going to follow you. And that's, that's where it ends. I love that answer because I love accountability. I think that's a really important part of integrity and character. But what if you work in an organization where you, as an individual contributor, love your colleagues, you love your supervisor, you maybe even love your director, but you hate the CEO or a new CEO comes in? How can you affect change or at least continue to thrive and work towards, you know, building the mission of the organization when you're not necessarily bought into the CEO who's ruling the place. And, and once again, what a great point, because you're swimming upstream. If you haven't got the impetus coming from the CEO and the CEO is focusing on things that aren't what you would consider to be the right things, there's going to be some sort of disharmony or mismatch there. It's, it's inevitable. I am a believer that you can create your own little culture inside an organization. So Regardless of what's going in other parts of the business, you have the accountability and the ability as a leader to form your own culture with the group of people that you bring in. And I've seen subcultures in organizations that are outstanding. And of course, in CS Energy, depending on where you were in the business, whether you're in one of our operating plants or whether you're in the head office and depending on what team you're in, the culture varied wildly. And so there were parts of the organization where the culture was actually still very, very poor after five years of this CEO doing everything he possibly could to make it better, and other parts where it was best-in-class culture that you couldn't find better in any office block you walked into in a developed country. But the massive range in cultures, I think, is the thing that, that people don't necessarily recognize. There's no one culture in an organization. And it's a constant battle, and it's a constant struggle, and leaders every day have to go in with the intent that says, I'm going to do whatever needs to be done to make this place better to improve the organization and to improve the way it operates for the people in it. Brilliant. What a fantastic answer. And it makes me think like, of course, there are multiple subcultures in an organization and hopefully they're healthy in your company, dear listeners out there. And if they're not, I would certainly encourage you to connect with my dear friend, Martin Moore here. Marty, you've got a lot coming up in the month of February and your schedule is just completely full. Why don't you tell us about some of the cool things that you're doing? Thanks, Laurie. Yes. Yeah, so if you go to our website, www.yourceomentor.com, uh, you'll find a whole bunch of stuff there. But obviously, we've got our podcast. It's called No Bullshit Leadership. And hopefully, what you've heard today gives you some indication of that I'm a relatively straight talker, I guess. And that covers all sorts of different management and leadership issues that come up. We tend to keep the episodes to about 15 minutes, so you can listen to them even in a short commute in a place like Raleigh. That's a free podcast that's out every week. What we're doing in February, though, we're releasing our flagship online education program called Leadership Beyond the Theory, which basically deals with the holistic view of what being a strong leader actually is. So we start with handle conflict, master ambiguity, create value, 
make great decisions, etc. Seven modules over seven weeks. And because you've all been so kind as to tune into Laurie's podcast today, we're going to offer a discount for any listeners here. There'll be a discount code, which Laurie will put in the show notes so that you can get 15% off registration for the course. Well, that's really fabulous. I know my audience is uh, constantly focused on continuous learning. You know, we believe readers are leaders. That's something that's really important to this podcast audience. And that if you're not learning and growing, what the hell are you doing, right? You know, what's the point of all of this? So thank you so much, Marty, for being on today's podcast. And just a word again, where can everybody find you on the internet and where can they connect with you and uh, get to know you? Sure. So thanks, Laurie. It's www.yourceomentor.com. And I'm happy for any connections that come through on LinkedIn, Martin Moore, M-O-O-R-E. Thanks a lot, Laurie. It's been great to be here. Thank you so much, Marty. And everybody sit tight. We'll be right back with more Let's Fix Work. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Marty Moore. Did you love his accent? I know I did. And I recorded this episode live with Marty and he showed up in jeans and a blazer, really looking that CEO casual look. And as we sat down, I worried that he'd be a little too corporate or jargony. And while he was professional, he was also earnest and right on the money. Marty Moore knows what he's talking about. So I hope you head on over to the show notes and sign up for his leadership course and connect with him on LinkedIn. Let's Fix Work was recorded live in Raleigh and produced in Nashville by Emerald City Productions. Danny Osmond is my producer and he's great. I absolutely appreciate him. If you like what you hear or have an idea for the show, hit me up at hello at letsfixwork.com or find me anywhere you are on the internet at L. Rudiman or Let's Fix Work. Now, that's all for today's show and I really hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next week on Let's Fix Work.